It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, you could say this evening that I'm here, there, and everywhere. And while that may suggest a journey with no place really in mind and no theme to the program, well, not so. I'm in Rycourt, Castlemore, near Cruistown, just off the main Cork to McCroom Road. I'm here to meet Rosaline Thompson Rye. The Ryes had lived in a stately home since the end of the 17th century, but Rycourt House, along with two other nearby country houses, were burned on the same night in June 1921. And I'm in Shandangan, in the Fernands area, close to the village of Carrigadrohad, to meet Hubie Hurley. Hubie was one member of an exceptionally skilled family of tradesmen who worked in churches, whose high roofs and steeples were not for the faint-hearted. Horses and horse racing feature quite a lot in this evening's programme, and why wouldn't they? After all, no visit to the village of Churchtown would be complete without discussing a man who in 2003 was voted the greatest influence in horse racing history. The legendary Vincent O'Brien was born in Churchtown in 1917. And so, there's a lot to do, and many miles to cover, on this week's edition of Where the Road Takes Me. Good evening and welcome to the programme, and do step right in. It really is a question of where to start here, so I decide to go and meet Noel Lenehan, who's a member of Churchtown Historical and Heritage Society. Noel is very much interested and involved in the preservation of wildlife, and he lives in the townland of Bally Grace, or Balia on Gracie, the town of the shoemaker. As well as shoemakers, Noel tells me that there was also a hedge school here. There's a lot to be gained from the old hedge masters because they seem to have an abundance of Latin and Greek and things that we do, you don't get in universities, I suppose. They were taught, I suppose, the island of saints and scholars is long after disappearing, but there were people that lived in rural areas and they had knowledge from father to son of even Latin and other things that we, we don't get in universities today. Farmers, of course, are so close to the land that it's only right and proper that they look after it, and that's exactly what you doing? Well, I'm only a custodian a few years. I won't be around at all, John. I'd like that someone else would just kind of look after it. And I, we think of the people that were there generations before us. They looked after it in their own way. And there was an abundance of wildlife and wildflowers and everything. Even the rabbits and everything were, were abundant there. So I think in our capacity, I know we're spending too much time trying to make money out of farming and <laughs> enterprises. Sometimes we're not <laughs> making it. But at the end of the day, 
idea there's more to living than to be trying to make the last bob out of a thing we should be enjoy our life as well on our drive up here I was noticing those beautiful colourful flowers so what are they those on the, the side of the road what we have there is the early purple orchids they're in bloom now uh, they're quite a rare thing and uh, they'll only grow in undisturbed land so it's important that places like this that we understand how to treat them and not to fertilise them unduly the other thing there I mentioned there's primulas there I also have uh, cowslips down at the end of the other lake there and there's also some of the flowering rush that was it that's an old Irish plant but it seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth I suppose with land improvements and things like that and if we look through the water there in the pond there are all these little snails pond snails there and it is amazing the way what they do they move around there and uh, fairly shortly I'd be expecting to see dragonflies they'd be mating they'd be going from one into the other and uh, what we have across the way too is the foxglove digitalis that's one of the most poisonous plants around but it's also a very important plant for heart ailments because surgeons still use it but uh, in every plant there's a cure we're told and uh, the wild mint are there too there's a St John's wort down there there's several holly bushes the irises are there I have a number of irises and I have about four different types of ferns as well as rushes so there's an abundance of wildlife Is that something that you've looked into the comparisons between plants and cures? Well, yes, from time to time, you see even the, the willow there now. I mean, there's an acid there that was, I suppose, it did us before we came to a diaspora. That ingredient is in the willow. So people may not think of it that way, but I mean, there were cures. There's another little plant that's growing there now, and there's more of it at the other side of the bank. It's the wood sorrel. The wood sorrel is also, you can use that as, a, we'll say, can be used for salads. It is a nice plant as well. So there's Tons of different flowers there. The daisies are there. There's uh, uh, poppies will be growing there wild again. There's yarrow at the base of that tree. And um, as I said, the orchids are nearly my favourite ones. Vincent O'Brien was born in Churchtown on the 9th of April 1917. 86 years later, he was voted the greatest influence in horse racing history in a worldwide poll conducted by the Racing Post. Hardly surprising really, because in between as a horse trainer, he won four Cheltenham Gold Cups, three champion hurdles and three consecutive Grand Nationals. At the age of 41, when he turned his attention to flat racing, you can also add 27 Irish classics, three Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, and 16 English classics, including six Epsom derbies. At the ancestral home at Clash Ganov in Churchtown, I meet his nephew, Noel O'Brien. Noel's grandfather and Vincent's father came to live here in Clash Ganov after he married in 1907. There was four boys in that marriage. My father was the eldest one, and the farm was left between the first two boys. That was my father and his brother John. Vincent was the eldest of the second family. My father and my grandfather got married again as his wife died in childbirth, having their fifth child. And about two years after that, he got married again, believe it or not, to her first cousin. And uh, there was four in that family. Vincent was the eldest, three boys and one girl. Where we are at the moment, this is Vincent's home house, is it, Clash Ganov? He was born in this house, yes. And the background to Clash Ganov, I think there's something about sand. Well, yes, from the old Irish translation, everybody says it. 
it's connected with uh, sand and gravel. There was a, a gravel pit and a sand pit on the farm. It's not in existence anymore, but there is uh, good traces of gravel on the place. Now, this is great horse country, but I suppose back in those days, the days of your grandfather and, and the early days of Vincent as well, all people had horses and all people were relying on horses. Well, yes, because um, there was no machinery in those days and every farm would have had two or three working horses. And uh, quite a good side income that time was you'd breed them to a thoroughbred cell and you'd make uh, hunters. They'd be half-breds. And my, father, my grandfather was very good at that and he progressed from that into the race horses. And I suppose that obviously rubbed off on Vincent then? Yeah, Vincent always says from a very young age that uh, he loved sitting on his father's knee and tracing back the pedigrees of uh, horses and uh, it is one of his longest, best memories. How aware were you of him when you were growing up? Oh, I was aware of him all the time. Um, I'd have been proud of him all the time, still am. He would have been part of the family. I would have known about him all the time. Cottage Rake was a successful national hunt racehorse. Before he started out on his jumping career, he'd been failed by a vet on three different occasions. On the last of these failures, the vet was working for Frank Vickerman, who had become one of the first patrons of a new Irish trainer on the block, whose name was Vincent O'Brien. The deal still went through, and Cottage Rake went on to become only the second horse ever to win the Cheltenham Gold Cup three years in a row, from 1948 to 1950. It would set his new trainer on the road to the top. Noel O'Brien reckons that this was one of his uncle's greatest achievements, but a lot of people may not be aware that Cottage Rake came so close to being shot before ever arriving at a UK racecourse. To win the Gold Cup back in 1948 was a tremendous achievement from a, a man from Churchtown. Probably what I consider one of his bravest things ever was in 1949, he put three horses on a plane in Shannon, which was the first horses ever flown out of Ireland. He put Cottage Rake, Hatton's Grace and Castle Dermot on the plane. And um, the three of them went over to Sheltonham and the three of them won. The Gold Cup, the Champion Hurdle and the Four Mile. What a lot of people don't know is that on that plane, Cottage Drake became very, very upset on the fly after taking off and the co-pilot had the gun taken out of his holster to put down Cottage Drake and only for Dermot and another local man, um, Danny O'Gorman, they said, please don't put down the horse, we'll give us another few minutes and we'll get him to settle down and Vincent, or sorry, Dermot was on his head and Danny O'Gorman was on the horse's tail and between the two of them, Danny had a great touch with horses, got the horse to settle and Vincent didn't travel horses for a long time, uh, put him on a plane for a long time after that. What do you think was his greatest achievement? Oh, there were so many. I suppose getting started, you know, to, to, to start off from here, it was a great achievement to take horse from Churchtown over to England and win the greatest, which is still the blue, blue ribbon of racing, the Gold Cup, and do that in 1948. When, coming back about the plane, there was about five cars in the parish at Churchtown that time. You know, when you think they put that horse the following year on the plane out of Shannon, five motor cars. My mother always said it when she came to Churchtown, there was about five cars in the parish. So it was some achievement that time. I suppose it wasn't a big decision then to move from, from Churchtown because he obviously had it in his mind to make this a full-time job and to be a success at it. Yes, he realised after a short time that yes, he could make a, a success out of it and um, to move on to Bally Doyle was a progress and yes.
Many country houses in northwest Cork were burned in June of 1921. One of those lost was Rycourt, the home of the Thompson Rye family. The Ryes originally lived in Cork City, where one of them was mayor in 1667 and again in 1668. By the end of the 17th century, they had moved to Rycourt near Castlemore in Crookstown and built this fine stately home. In the second half of the 18th century, they changed their name to Tonson Rye after marriage with another family. Rycourt overlooked some beautiful land. Trees from the parkland can still be seen. But Rycourt, along with two other nearby country houses, were burned in June of 1921. By all accounts, the Ryes were kind and considerate landlords. As one man put it to me, they fed and buried many people whose families weren't in a financial position to do so. Rosaline Thompson Rye was born in Folkestone and Kent in 1932 and moved with the family to Rycourt soon afterwards. Her father built a small house inside the adjacent walled garden. Rosaline has been tracing the family tree for me. I had a phone call from an American right there about 12 years ago and he said his descendants had sailed from Yall in 1660 and evidently my first relative was in Yall in 1550 and I'd say he must have come with Sir Walter Raleigh and this American, I've been great friends with him ever since. <laughs> he was in the American Navy but, but I've no idea when they came to Cork. And how did the Tonsons and the Ryes then come together? Well, it was rather funny. A Rye married a girl called Mead, and she had, I think, an uncle called Hull. He was quite a well-known character down at West Cork. And he left her money on condition that she took the name Thompson. And the Thompsons built Dunkettle. They were bankers in Cork. I think they died out pretty soon after that. There was a lord who lived up in Rathcormac, Lisnagan. He was Thompson. I've forgotten his name, though. <laughs> and who was Richard Thompson Rye then? Was He was in East Moskery. Was that the captain? I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very colourful character. Mm. There's a painting of him in the hall on his horse. He was um, master of the Moskery Hounds for 37 years, I think. And uh, he had the, the colourful thing that he was sentenced to prison for shooting someone. But I think it was a, it was a, a provocation that he'd fallen out with someone, one of the Howards, I think, or something. And th- this fellow walked across in front of the house with a big dog. <laughs> and the captain got out his gun and and uh, he said he was trying to shoot the dog. But I, he got the man in the, the leg, I think, and he was sentenced. It, it was a huge thing. It, it was all, it went to the House of Commons even. He uh, was sentenced to three months in prison, but I think he only did about a week. (laughs) (laughs) George Frederick Rye then. Who was George Frederick Rye? He was the one. He was in Immokilly, was he? Was he the one that was Lord... No, George Rye was the one that drained the the bog and things, going to kill Cray. And he wrote, uh, he has a thing on agriculture in the Marshes Library. In in, um, Smith's History of Cork, it has the description of how they cut the trenches and drained the bog into the River Bride, because it was impossible in in the old days. I remember going to a lecture up in Ravidi with a historian, and she said, in the old days, that the people on the north side of the valley never saw the people on the south side because it was so, such a bog they couldn't get across. <laughs> and he drained that bog. He drained it. Yeah. yeah. Have you have you seen, read the book at all that my cousin Udo Rye wrote? No. Well, that's the history of Rycourt. There's a copy of it in the Wool Library, and it's all the history of the Rye from the very beginning. 
And that's the end of part one. Our travels through Churchtown, Fernands and Crookstown continue in part two shortly. To begin part two of our programme this evening, I pay my first visit to Shandangan in Fernands to meet Hubie Hurley. Hubie and his two brothers and their father before them were skilled tradesmen. His brother Pat was exceptionally skilled in the making of plaster plaques. Their work can be seen in many churches throughout the county to this very day. Now, while they may have got their skills from their father, and they probably did, the opportunity to become tradesmen was thanks to their mother, who pulled out all the stops to help them do so, and under difficult circumstances. I was born in Akshanavi, Fernand, and uh, I had two sisters and two brothers. And one of my sisters, she died when she was only in about six years. What happened was, my mother, she was always sewing, and my mother put the scissors up, up high, you see, mm-hmm. and then she opened the table and fell off with, and it, it went in through her hand. She was inside in the hospital cock because that time we had the same medication as now. Yeah. You see, and when my father was passing along by the ward, he had to cry, and then he go back and bring her home, and she died. But anyhow, uh, my father died in when we were young, and my mother, God be with her, anyhow, she was a marvelous woman, and do you know what she had to, to rear us per week? Ten shillings, and out of that ten shillings, she made three tradesmen out of her three sons, and had no sort of a daughter. And your father, your father was a tradesman. He was. Oh, we were at it all our life. All of you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the three, the three of us. Yeah, you know that was it, like. What was it like growing up there then? Well, we were heavy old. I tell the truth, that uh, uh, we had enough anyway. But I used to be all walking. They need the turnips for the farmers. <laughs> and uh, when I be finished in with the farmers around Fernands, you used to go to Bend in the measure. And uh, I, I was no more than six or seven years. And I, I do thinning out there. We, we were all fairly athletic, I said, like, and uh, as a matter of fact, in a fear, really. Uh, my brother, Pat, and myself, we have 12 mid-cocked medals with the roof. For? Uh, hurling. Oh, hurling, yeah. And um, we went to the school, and we went to the school of art in Cork after. And my brother, he was very good at ornamental plastering. And to see it on the, the church over in Canopy, over the altar, just with corners, just corners. And uh, I think that he didn't pardon as well, but I'm not so sure. But he didn't carry it in here. And to see that some of the canvases are screwed on the wall. They make them in the ground and screw them on. You see, well, anyone could do that. But he'd run them with a, a mould. And it can be seen over in Canary just now for anyone to see it right. over the altar. Yeah. He was very talented, so. He, he was, he was, he was. And uh, 
the pack there, you saw the pack and that you do? Yeah. That's cast that you see, you, you'll make it first to see, and you have to put pastor over, over again, but you have to, to make it like, the whole thing is to make the original. But he was very good at that, you know. The man to ask about the early days of the rise in Rycourt House and the history of the area is Canon Humphrey O'Mahony, who's originally from Tomes in Kilmichael. He's retired now, but was ordained back in 1961 and has been in Scotland ever since. And I'm now 85 years of age. <laughs> How has the, as we call it here, cocooning been going for you over the past few months? Ah, well, you know, it is, it is a hardship for, for most people. I'm, I'm lucky because I'm retired now and I have a nice house here that's given to me by the diocese and I'm looking after a little church alongside of me here and that was once its own parish but now it amalgamated the cathedral parish but I'm very happy in looking after that and having my little house here and it doesn't mean that great much to me. And I presume there's, there's a longing always for Kilmichael. Oh yes, so oh, there's not a year that I haven't gone back over the, over the years from the very beginning. I've gone over back um, certainly once every year and twice most years. To start on the rise or the Tonson rise and Rycourt House, should we start with a gentleman by the name of John Bailey? Yeah, well, yeah, that would be the first as I'm aware of that uh, John Bailey is. John Bailey's daughter married uh, George Rye, who was the son of Christopher Rye, who was Lord Mayor of Cork at the time. That marriage took place away back in 1719. He married the daughter of, of John Bailey, who had got, uh, got Castlemore and the surrounding areas you know, through the Act of Settlement of 60, uh, 1666 under Lord Brockle. He had got that given to him. He'd, he'd have been a supporter of, of, a, of a Cromwell, and he, he, got the, he got the lands there uh, at that John... But uh, that would have included, because Raycourt is very close to uh, Castlemore. What about this guy, Brockle? What's, what's the, the, the background to him? Oh, I had known that he was a, one of Cromwell's henchmen, you know, to see to see it, it's Cromwell's work here in this part of the world, you know, in the Cork, in the Cork area, and in Kerry as well. But I, I wouldn't know much. But he lived for a time in the castle in McCroom, McCroom Castle. Crook, then the village of Crookstown, named after him. After Crook, yeah, they were a yeah. Crook in English family as well. They, they they got the lands there in the same way as John Bailey had got them. That was a Crook, and the, the, their survivors of that family still in England. Boss Murphy was born in Churchtown in 1831. He was a tenant farmer until he purchased the family homestead under the land acts of the late 19th century. He had a deep interest in traditional music and even made his own instruments. As I head into Churchtown, let's hear a song in his honour. I was making me way At Churchtown village I had a delay For to wet the old whistle with water I scarcely had travelled a mile of the road When I heard a dispute in a farmer's abode the bold eggment the vile looking told, and the wife of the bold tenant farmer. The eviction or rent was old eggment demand. If your husband can't pay, I'll have him the land. Was what he came running with cash 
rest And down the black road like a deer I did pick I care not for landlord or duke or old mick For I'm taking the road till it's carol Meanwhile, back in Clashganov, the birthplace of horse trainer Vincent O'Brien, his nephew Noel O'Brien speaks highly of the people of Churchtown, who helped and supported his famous uncle on his successful journey as a trainer. Oh yes, you had a couple of local families, I'll start with the most local one, uh, the O'Sullivan family, they were literally the closest house to the home place here, and um, their father, when he was dying, asked my father to come down, or my grandfather to come down, and he said to him, look, my two youngest lads, will you take care of them, please, and he gave the two of them a job, one of them was Jimmy, and the other was Danny O'Sullivan, and Danny went on to become probably one of his best work riders ever and went on to Belly Doyle with him. Uh, Jimmy had got married to a local girl and he didn't go to Belly Doyle with him but lived all his life here next door. And then there was a, an O'Callaghan family and um, just over the road and three of that family would have worked here. Morris would have been the man who had given the most year of service and that he was probably headman for Vincent for give or take 25 years. Uh, his two brothers would have worked here as well, Pedro and um, Bill. Then there was Mannings, uh, there was a uh, Dave Manning, I think, and he would have taken care of the gallops here always. I often heard his name mentioned. He went on to Belly Doyle as well uh, to look after the gallops, uh, which was very important, and build the fences and take care of the fences. They're just the names that I can recall, but if I miss out on one or two, I'm, I'm sorry, but they're just the ones I can recall at the moment. But there would have been other families. We were just talking about Nijinsky a few moments ago. What horse do you think was special to him? Oh, I would say Nijinsky was very special. Very rarely did Vincent ever lead in one of his winners at a race meeting, and he led in Nijinsky, and the last one he led in again at Ascot was College Chapel, his very last winner, listed winner. And the horses, have they rubbed off on you? I have um, National Hunt broodmares, and um, yes, they have rubbed off on me. <laughs> Well, back in the townland of Ballygrace, or Bolla on Grey Sea, I meet up again with Noel Lenehan. The summer sunshine, the tranquility, and the bird song in the town of the shoemaker makes it a day to enjoy. The birds will wake you every morning, and they'll give you hope as well. There was an old man, he was called up to me, he's dead since his, he'd have came from the Atlantic Hilti side. But um, this time of the year, he loved to hear the swallows arriving. There's bumblebees just there in front of us now, John. But when they'd go at the fall deer, he gets sad. But he called to me years ago. He said he was a man that never wrote poetry or anything. He brought a small bit of paper with me. And um, he said, do you know, it was in the month of August. And he said, I get lonesome at this time of the year because he said, when the swallows go away, someone from our parish will die. He was dead in about three weeks. He brought up a small bit of paper and it was the migration of the swallow. And if we were talking a hundred years ago, we wouldn't be talking about the migration. We'd be talking about the hibernation. If we look at the old books there, they said the swallows never migrated. They believed they hibernated, but that was all wrong. But uh, he wrote these few lines, if I'm not holding up 
up the listeners. Not at all. Yeah. I'd love to hear them. Yeah, it is about the migration of the swallow. It is done in prose. It doesn't be poetry. With a full moon and a bright polar star shining, a myriad of fluttering wings fly in a migration trail. A rolling sky and darkening clouds soon cause apprehension. Onward we proceed, always hoping for a favourable airstream. Suddenly great headwinds appear and heart palpitates with fatigue. Some of the party fall to their ocean grave like an aerial battle during wartime combat. When all seems lost, a flickering light in the distance, all shout in unison, a lighthouse, God is on our side. Not a trace of the lightkeeper this year, replaced by a robotic gadget. Is man becoming obsolete? My friend the cocoa and corn crack are missing again this year, in some way to man's so-called progress. Is Wordsworth's call of the cocoa to be silenced forever in the years of children yet unborn? After resting in the lighthouse, it is now time to depart to my family home where I raised my happy family last year. The old bent farmer with his dog and walking stick looked up to the barn roof. With my appearance, he knows summer is nigh. I herald in the summer for my friend the farmer. I fly high when the air is clear and fly low when the insect's wings are moisture laden. I am the farmer's friend the oldest forecaster. Who am I but God's little humble swallow? He had died three weeks after he, he gave me that and he told me to learn it. He said, <laughs> but, and you have? I, well, in my own little yeah. words, but he said a little bit of prose. But, it is beautiful, yeah. yeah. What did he say again, that when the when the swallows leave, somebody in the parish will die? When, when some, someone in the par- parish will die and he said, before they come back again, there'll be changes. Which was right, like, the older people, it was the swallow, the cocoa and corn crack. They lived to hear them. And you know, I suppose there's nothing better than to be out on a sunny day and the sun blazing down on us and to hear that bird song. It takes years off you. That brings part two of Where the Road Takes Me to a Close. But Shandangan, Rycourt and Churchtown are our ports of call again in part three, directly after the break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The dissolution of the Irish monasteries took place during the late 17th century. It was the handiwork of Oliver Cromwell, or Lord Protector as he was known as. Somebody obviously had a sordid sense of humour when dishing out titles. To find out more about this and its effects, I returned to Scotland and to Canon Humphrey O'Mahony, who was originally from Tomes in Kilmichael. That took place in the 17th centuries, and that, of course, affected all of Ireland, you know, and indeed Scotland here in a very big way as well, where the great monasteries of, of St. Andrews and Melrose uh, were destroyed in the same, at the same time under Cromwell. But uh, the suppression of the monasteries, you know, that, was, that could never be uh, over-exaggerated, you know, the change about, that it brought about in Ireland. And Kilcray Abbey would have fallen under that? Yeah, yeah, well... well at that time, the, the, the monasteries, you see, owned and farmed vast areas of land throughout the entire country, not just in Kilcray, which we're talking about now, the Kilcray Abbey owned all those estates. As a result, they became very wealthy in every aspect of society and very influential. You see, it was the monks who would have uh, farmed the land together with so many large numbers of local a population, both men and women, would work with them in their farms throughout that area. And one of the best examples of that system is certainly Kilcray Abbey, vast in, in its time and so influential in the, in the fertile valley of the uh, Lee Valley. The Lee Valley is a bit of a, a misnomer, actually, in that context, because it is really the River Bride that goes closest to, to Rycourt. The Lee Valley goes to the northern side of uh, the Lee Valley that is referred to that part of the country that's referred to as the Lee Valley. The, the, the main river, the River Lee, goes from McCroom east to Carrigadride, on to Rubens Bridge and on to Inniscara, whereas in the Bride, that has its origin way back in the Copian area, goes down into Kilmurray, from there down to Crookstone, on to Rycourt and Castlemore, over to Arla and over to Ovens and down into Inniscara where it joins the, the, the River Lee. So in that river, with the country that we're talking about through the Rye family, that was where the, the River Bride went. And in its time, would Kilcray have been regarded as a fairly large monastery? Oh, 
very, oh, very, very large and very influential. Very influential, very influential. And it's in a beautiful part of the part, part of the country. The land around it is probably the best in, in Ireland, the best limestone land in Ireland. Several families there that are very influential to the present day around the Abbey, that they would have been Abbey lands originally. That act of settlement that took place then uh, through the Cromwell in 1666 changed all of that. And then these other families were brought in to own and to, and to run and, and, and take over in every way. Those, those lands. And those stretch really, the, the lands of the Abbey stretch from Cork City or well, Ballincollig anyhow, uh, right back along that valley, the Bride Valley, right back to, to, to the boundary of Kilmichael Parish. Vast lands and the very best of land. I'd be from Kilmichael then, so I would only know uh, very well uh, the state uh, of Warrenscourt, of, of uh, Crookstone, and of uh, the one at Castlemore, including uh, Rycourt. My side of what would have been the former lands of Kilcray Abbey. You see, Rycourt, the bog originally went as far as Kilcray Abbey. And my father, some years ago, got an invitation to come to the 500 years centenary of Kilcray Abbey as the last private owner. And when, when he got there anyway, oh, Morocco, you know, the historian, met him in great excitement. You're not the first private owner. He said, you still own it. <laughs> But I, I know I know nothing other than that about Kilcray Abbey, that it stretched as far as that. I was born, I was actually born, by, uh, my mother came from Kent, her family came from Kent, and I was actually born in Kent, near Folkestone. Tell me a little bit about your parents and how they met. It's rather funny how they met. <laughs> my father was staying in the hotel. His mother and his stepfather, he never had a home, just lived in different hotels. And my mother's father was moving up from Devon to where his family originated and they'd bought a house that was being done up. And she was staying in the hotel and they were both very late coming down for breakfast. They were only the only people in the dining room. And my father asked the the waiter to introduce them. And, and this hotel was where? In, in Folkestone. In Folkestone, in Kent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's how it all happened. Yeah, so the introduction... And immediately he was 21 then, and she was, she was about two or three years older, yeah. and they came back over here. Yeah, my mother's family were very much involved in India. She was born in India and didn't, didn't come back till she was nine, and she was dumped in school. <laughs> it was very hard on people yeah. in those days. And what sort of career then did your, your father follow? A lot of your relations, your grandfather, your granduncles, they were in the army, fought no, in World War No, my father didn't yeah. do anything. He just... He did no military. Yeah, yeah. Well, he just lived here and he farmed it and... Yeah, but a lot of your a lot of your relations would have would have fought in the in the war. Oh, they would. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, the, the two brothers of my, my grandfather and the elder brother, he never married. He fell down the stairs in the house and he was killed. And that's how it came to my father. And the third brother then was in the army. He was Major Huey, Huey Tom. But he was a professional soldier. He was all his career in the army. Rosaline Tonson Rye. Well, earlier in Chandangan, you heard Hubie Hurley tell me that he and his brother Pat won a few mid-cork titles for hurling with Tladuv. And I'm just wondering what kind of celebrations followed these victories. 
Why? <laughs> not like not like the celebrations now, I suppose. We we might go to bed in in different areas, right? No, but but uh, my brother Pat, right? He captain Shadow at one one of my right, like you know that that uh, well, I was no Christine, I I not both here like that, you know. But I wouldn't feel Christine in the. Was it always in construction that you you worked in? It was. I, I tell you the truth that um, at one time I worked for Leary's for my fourteen years. I was. I'd be often singing there. I'd be always posting there. But, but I worked for for Leary's for ten years, and I never missed a day. No, I never had a holiday. And he was to a lot of schools. And I was often thinking about like of the different places. I, I, I won't say so many, but Ballincarry, Ballinborna, uh, Little Island, Dungarvan, the continent in Formai, two schools in Mississippi, um, Mala, Dila Salamala. They were here, the, the, the Dila Sal, but I, I, I think it could be gone over. Donnerell, Charleville, and into Limerick, then I can't think of it at the moment, but Bellyfield School, Churchfield, and St. Finbars in Cockwood. There was a lot of schools yeah. on there. Yeah, you worked in all of those. I did, yeah. I did the plastering. Plastering all of yeah. those, yeah. And, and uh, I left over one, Glenworth, Glenworth, Archbishop Cushing, he came from Glenworth and he gave extremely uh, only make a better job, you know. Mm. And and uh, I often think of it, but what I didn't do is with the man who me, he done the pillars, and the pillar was that, you know, with say at five feet going up to two feet, you know. But the roof was, um, they called random tiling, that all different color tiles. And I done that all right, but there's a way in doing it. You know, I was fortunate in my time that I met some great people. Like one was Johnny Ward, and he told me about that. And as you see, I played and you could imply that with color bricks in the sea. As a matter of fact, that when Castlemore were at the bricks, you know, I used to put up plaques for them. Like. And that's a few lines from Mogilla Mar, a lament by the Gaelic goddess, in this case Era, for Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Great Pretender. It was sung by Mary Black. Charlie was a descendant of Mary Queen of Scots, and he sought to sit on the throne of England. He had obvious support in Ireland when he attempted to end religious persecution in Scotland, Wales, England and occupied Ireland. The Jacobite Rebellion of 1745 was put down, hundreds of his followers died in battle, and under secrecy, Bonnie Prince Charlie fled to the continent and died in exile. The Lament, Magillamar, was written soon afterwards by Sean Clarock MacDonald, who was born here in Churchtown in 1691. At a place called the Windmill, I meet Noel Lenehan to find out much more about him. It's an elevated townland. Long ago, there was a windmill there. If we look up in front of you there, John, you'll see the height and the grove of trees. And uh, there's a half circle where the old windmill were there. That's part of the O'Donnells. They had a McDonald's. They had a, a windmill there long ago. And Sean Clark MacDonald was a son of theirs. And... 
they operated a flax mill and flax going back many centuries was a very important industry because we got our linen from it but wherever there were flax it had to be milled and wherever it had to be milled before that it had to be grown and uh, growing flax is a complicated procedure because you needed water and there's a big bog there and a bog and all those fields beside us they were sown with flax long ago. Churchtown flax was a very valuable thing because good flax today, I mean, you can't, if you've got a tablecloth of real Irish linen, it's very costly. You can't buy it compared to imported fabrics. But old linen was something prized and a lot of it was exported. There was a big mill down on the banks of the Arbeg down there and they also the milling up there and I suppose we could picture the wings of that flying around because whatever is there there was an old man living there once and he used to if ever I go up to the top of that field he said you're going to be blown with wind whether it's north, south, east or west so I suppose it was chosen because it was a suitable place for the windmill the turbines were able to go around in it. Now we're here to talk about Sean Clarock MacDonald he was born in 1691 and we're talking about the penal times when education wasn't as available as it is now but he still got a very good education he did because i'm probably mentioned before that even going back four or five hundred years ago it is amazing at the head schools long ago that latin and greek were part of the curriculum we'd say how in the name of god did people learn those things but even if we go back to the island of saint and scholars i suppose before henry VIII's time we were a cultured people we learned from each other and uh, sean clark was one of those people he wanted to foster the the irish language the irish culture and all that and one of the things that i suppose we'd admire with him he set up a bardic school down charleville later and you had sean or then and uh, you had other scholars coming to that so if you like it was a seat of education in its own way and I suppose the most important thing we link in Churchtown with Sean Clark is the song Magillamar. The air of Magillamar is to the white cockade a Scottish air it's a rousing air and intentionally so it was written by Sean Clark to bring positivity to the people of Ireland at a time when they were oppressed feeling despondent and without hope he studied for the priesthood at one stage. He was a fluent Greek and Latin scholar. I suppose from that background, he was bound to, uh, we'll say, have a schooling, we'll say, down Charleville or, or around the Magway as well. So we're proud in Churchtown that we have his heritage here. And once a year, we have a little commemoration evening because uh, it was in January that he died. And we like to have a little evening of culture to celebrate and to commemorate the man that way. We're back in Shandangan, Rycourt, Ballygrace and Churchtown again next week and we're also in the townland of Turin Dove near Ballydesmond. Doc Martin was in sound this evening and I appreciate you spending time with us. Until Sunday evening next at 7, this is John Green wishing you a safe, pleasant and healthy week. Goodbye for now.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 